The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you want to go to Psalm 118, that's where we'll be today. 118th Psalm. I think I mentioned that last week, that this is where we would be heading. If you remember last week, we were in Psalm 113, And I said that Psalm 113 all the way to Psalm 118 was lumped together and they're called the Egyptian Halal Hymns. These were the Psalms that would have been sung during festivals and especially during Passover uh, by Israel. And so Psalm 118 would have been the last hymn that they would have sang probably even after the Passover was took in praising the Lord for what he has done. And so I want us to remember that as we approach this passage, because probably, again, we can't say with 100% certainty, but probably, most likely, this would have been the very last song that Jesus would have sung before leaving the upper room to head to the garden to then face death on the cross. And we'll look at that more in depth. But As we read this psalm, one of the ways that you can read this psalm is you can read it as a progression. And I want to do that uh, at first, well, as we look at it together. I'll read all of Psalm 118 together. But then it can be read and broke down as a progression of a leader of the people talking to the people, telling them to praise the Lord, the people responding by praising the Lord, and then the king coming on the scene, and the king talking about his many troubles that he has faced And then the king coming to a point of asking for salvation, asking for righteousness, asking for entryway into the temple. And we see that that is granted to the king. And then you'll see the priests then raise their voice and they talk about the rejected cornerstone and speaking of the king. And again, we'll dive into this a little bit more. And then a call after the sacrifice to praise him forevermore. And so it's said that this could have even been sung as people would proceed to the temple together. All right, and so I want that just kind of in your mind as we, as we look at this uh, together. So look at and follow along as we read Psalm 118. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works 
of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. It's a little longer than the other Psalms that we have looked at. Next week's will be, I think, even a little longer uh, than that. Maybe you heard some lyrics to some songs that you're familiar with. As we went through this psalm together, it sparks into your mind. That's one of the good things about songs, good songs, is it helps us to memorize scripture together. In verses one through four, as we talked about with this procession, the people of God are called to praise God. It's as if there's a worship leader present calling on the people of God to praise God. The Lord, he says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. And I do want to point out that word mercy. It comes up so repetitively in the Psalms and it comes up in other places throughout scripture. And it's a very important word. I've already mentioned it in our study of Psalms, but the word hesed, covenantal love, the covenantal love of God for his people. This is not some generic mercy that God just pours out on all mankind. This is specific mercy that was given to God's chosen people, his, his covenant people of the time. And it's, and it's very interesting because it says, Israel, now say his mercy endures forever. The house of Aaron, right, the priests, now say his mercy endures forever. But then it extends it out even farther. Those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. So for us who are not of Israel, for us who are not of Aaron, We can't sit back and say, well, this isn't talking about me. This this covenantal love of God must be just for them. No, that's completely wrong because then it goes on to say, those who fear the Lord cry out, his mercy endures forever. I don't want to stay on this point too long because we've already talked about it in the series, but this should be what causes us as God's people to praise him is his covenantal steadfast everlasting love for you that you simply do not deserve. Listen, Israel did not deserve God's love. They did, they did nothing to deserve God's love. They did nothing to be chosen by God that he would use them throughout the world. They, they couldn't stand and say it's because of how great we were or how special we were. Likewise, for us who've been saved by God's grace, I cannot stand and say, well, of course you chose me. Look at me. Well, who wouldn't choose me? And you can't say that either, right? You, you can't stand and proclaim, this is why God has chosen me, because I'm so talented. Or because, you know, I can do this for him. Well, I have a lot of money, so I can give it away and be used of him in that way. 
No. No, you, you have nothing to bring to the table. And yet God has saved you by his grace. That should cause us then to rise together like the leader here is telling us to do and says, praise him. Why? Because his mercy endures forever. His, his steadfast love is forever and it's yours because of his great grace in your life. And so we have this worship leader calling on the people to praise the Lord and you can hear them repeating this back saying, yes, his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Then we get to verse five and all the way through 18. And here the king would speak. And the king speaks in a very singular sense and talks about his struggles that he's faced in life of of nations surrounding him and the decisions that he had to make. He says, he says, they surround me like bees. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation before. I've been in that situation before trying to cut a log on the ground and put my foot in one of the hives that are underground. Those things attack quick and they attack fast. They're not scared of a chainsaw. They're not afraid of you and you can't get away from them. It just seems impossible. That's the feeling that the king has at this moment, that people surround me. But they, he talks about how, the, how they were destroyed, how the Lord allowed him and his armies to destroy these other nations, how God has seen him through all of these different things. But again, we just see the struggle of life that's taking place in this king's life. Now, you might not be a king. I don't think you are. But you can probably relate to some extent of the struggles of life that take place. As the king goes through these struggles of life, he finally gets to verse 19 and he cries out to God, right? He says, open to me the gates of righteousness and I will go through them. Listen, he understands something here. There's an understanding by the king that although he's the king, he's not allowed in unless the gates are opened for him. So he can destroy these nations. He can conquer all these different things. But when he gets to the gate and in here proceeding to the temple, It must be open for him. The gates of righteousness needs to be open so that he can pass through. And he says, and I will pass through and I will praise the Lord. And when you look at verse 21, the end of this little section, he says, I will praise you. Why? You've opened the gate for me. You've answered me. You've answered me in what? And you have become my salvation. The gates of the temple have now opened. And the king can walk through. And along with the king, the people of the king now get to walk through this gate into the temple. And so as we proceed through this psalm, now what happens and takes place is the priests start to speak up. And so in verses 22, all the way through verses 27, you see the the priests speaking and and the priests acting. And they talk about this cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that was rejected, probably referencing the king. The king who was worthy to enter through the gates of righteousness that was open for him. How the other nations laughed at him. The other nations pushed him aside. But no, he is the cornerstone that allowed them to walk through. So the priests continue to cry out, save now, I pray, O Lord. In verse 25, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Praying for their people, praying for their nation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord, the priest would proclaim. Again, speaking of the king. But as you get to verse 27, you see they have entered the temple and they've gotten to the place where the sacrifice is going to take place. It says, God is the Lord and he has given us light. 
bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. The sacrifice is ready to be taken place. The forgiveness of sins, right? That God will allow this sacrifice to happen. And all that they can do in response is to praise him forevermore in verses 28 through 29. Praise him forevermore. Now, after running through this psalm very briefly, I want us to look at Psalm 118. And I'm going to go through a lot of different scripture here. Hopefully, it'll all be on the screen. So that we can see this psalm in the eyes of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he sings this for the very last time. So I want you to do your best to try to think maybe how Christ would be thinking as he's with his disciples. They've observed the Passover meal together. All right, they've done everything that they were supposed to do and now they're getting ready to close their time together and they're going to sing the final hymn that they are supposed to sing that all of Israel will be singing in their homes. Jesus, knowing what's about to be done, he sings this psalm and let's, let's just reflect on it together. In verse five, it says the king prays under extreme pressure. Jesus knows what this is like. In Hebrews chapter five, verse seven, it says in the days of his flesh, Jesus, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus, Jesus soon will be in the garden where we know that he is going to pray and he prays so earnestly and he's so anxious about what is about to take place that it says he, he would sweat drops of blood. And so as he's singing this psalm with his disciples, this has to be on his mind that the king would pray with such pressure that this was his life, this was his lifestyle, how he'd often go to the father. In verses 10 through 14, the king shows his confidence against all who would come against him and how he would destroy them. You remember that being said in the psalm that we read, I will destroy them, I will destroy them. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 52 to 54, it says, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. You remember this is in the garden and Peter thought he was gonna fight for Christ. He says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You see, when Jesus was about to enter what he was about to enter, it wasn't a lack of confidence or a lack of faith that took him to the cross. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He knew at any moment he could destroy those people. No matter what swords they had, no matter what military force they would bring against him, do you not think at any moment I can destroy them that my father wouldn't send legions upon legions of angels to get rid of them? In verse 12, it says he overcame through the name. It says in verse 12 of Psalm 118. In John chapter 10, verse 25, it says Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe the works that I do And my father's name bears witness about me. Everything Jesus would do would be in the name of his father. And he let the people know that over and over and over again, that this was the power that he had was through the name of his father. In verse 13, it tells us that this king faced one particular individual foe. Look at verse 13. 
says, you pushed me violently, speaking to an individual, that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. Jesus, the same way in John 14, verse 30, says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. Jesus was not in a war against the world. He was not in a war against the people and the Pharisees or the people who would take him to the cross. That was not who his enemy was. That is not who he was was battling because again, at any moment he could destroy them. That, That wasn't the issue. His one sole enemy is Satan, is sin, right? Death, hell, the grave, we see that. And he's, this is what I am here to conquer. This is the foe that needs to be destroyed. We see in verses 14 and 16 of Psalm 118 that the king finds Yahweh's help in salvation. In John chapter six, verse 57, Jesus would say, As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus again saying, it's because of the Father that I'm here. It's because of the Father. It's his will that I've come to do these things. And then he goes on to say what we're going to talk about during Lord's Supper time. Those who feed on me will thus live through the Father, through me. We get to verse 17. The king would talk about how he came through deadly danger alive. Right? He came through this deadly danger alive. And I want to read verse 17. It says, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. I shall not die, but I shall live. And I'm going to declare the works of of the Lord. Now, I want you to again put yourself in the shoes of Christ for a moment as he would sing this little line of this song, knowing where he is headed. I shall not die, but live. Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23 through 24, the Bible tells us this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Something I think we shouldn't glance over, though. While the king, while whoever wrote this psalm, some say Moses, some say Elijah, some say David, nobody's certain, they lived through their difficulties. Right? They, they saw deliverance from God, but Jesus had to be thinking in his mind at this moment, I'm dying. I'm dying because he's going to go in the garden and he's going to pray that this cup would pass over him. He's going to pray for deliverance from the father, but there's no answer of deliverance. And he would say, but, but not my will, but, but your will be done. And so when he would sing this psalm, oh, it's great. The king has been spared. He knows, but not, not me. I won't be spared. What I'm about to go through is going to be brutal. Oh, I know that I will conquer it and I know that I will live again. Death, death won't hold me forever, but yet I do have to die. I do have to face this experience. I can't imagine singing that song without maybe at least tearing up, knowing what he is going to face with the distress and the anguish. Then we get to verse 18 and it says, how the king endured Yahweh's 
chastening. John 18, 11 tells us, so Jesus said to Peter, I already read this once, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Listen, we can make no bones about this. Jesus going to the cross was something planned all along. It wasn't from the wisdom of man to kill this guy. Jesus was going to face the wrath of his father. And he was going to take it full force. Not a little bit of it. No way to talk your way out of this. He was facing the wrath of God 100% on that cross. And so just like this king, how he endured it, Jesus knows, I am about to endure much worse. As we get to verses 19 and 21, we see that the king called for the gates to be open, the gates of righteousness to be open, and we see that this king was qualified, that the, that the gates were opened for him and he, and he was able to walk in. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, it says, so Jesus said to Peter, oh, I did that twice. You know what? I'm going to have to read it up there. It says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is the only one righteous and worthy to enter the gate of righteousness. We could take this even a step further because Jesus tells us he is the gate of righteousness, that he alone is the pathway to the gate of righteousness, how he is all of it all together. And so him alone and his righteousness and his perfect sinless life, he alone is worthy to go into the gate. And so if you want to put your head into the picture in the scene as the, of the procession of the psalm in the original text there, the people could beat the king to the gate, but they cannot get in. They're not worthy to get in. But then the king arrives to the gate and he asks, can the gate be open? If the gate is willing to be open, I will walk through. I will experience this salvation. The gate is open and it's not just the king who gets to go in, but all those who are in his kingdom get to go into the temple with him. I don't know what clearer picture we need of this being Christ. It is only because of him that we get to be a part of the kingdom of God. It is only because of him that we get to, to walk in and be ushered into the throne room of God. Not of our own doing. Apart from Christ, we just sit at the gate, begging, pleading, maybe warring against it. But we're not allowed in. But Christ was qualified to enter. Sinless, the chosen, only begotten Son of God to enter in to this gate. In verse 22 of 118, it says, the stone which the builders rejected. We see this rejection by human judgment taking place of this king all around. And we know in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, it says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter would use this to talk about Jesus. Jesus. 
to say Jesus is the cornerstone and talking to his people, Jewish people, saying you have rejected him, just like was talked about in the psalm that we would sing at the end of Passover. This is Christ. He's the rejected cornerstone. He is the king that we've been singing about all the time. He is the one. And that's the second part of verse 22, right? He has become the chief cornerstone. Not only rejected, yes, rejected by man. In their wisdom, they thought no way. But for God's plan, he is the way. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 21, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I'm no builder. I don't claim to be anything that I make. I'll be honest. I'm never 100% confident in it. Even if it works the first time, I'm not confident it's going to work the second time. But I know this about a cornerstone. The cornerstone is a very important part of building. It's what sets the foundation. It's what makes sure that everything else would work. Now, I think oftentimes in the church, we forget that neither the pastor nor the church member is the cornerstone. Whether I fall and fail or whether you fall and fail does not make the whole house go because our cornerstone is Christ himself. And he cannot fail. He cannot fail. And so the things in this world will come at the church and listen, men and women alike will fall. They will fall. They'll trust in their own doings. They'll put faith in something other than Christ. And because of that, they will fall. They will not persevere, scripture says. That's how they would talk of them. They will not persevere. But the church of Jesus Christ will always persevere. It will never fail because it's not based on us. It's based on him and what he has done. He is our foundation. As you get to verse 24, it says, what does it say? It says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This was a day of rejoicing during Passover, right? They're, they're happy of what God has done. They're praising him during this festival. But again, Jesus must mouth these words as he sings them, knowing that the mob is just outside the door. And so for Jesus to praise and say, I praise you. Great is this day. I love this day. This is the day the Lord has made. Can you imagine that ringing true in Christ's ears? This day has been foreknown forever that I would die but Father, I praise you for it. Now, I want you to think about that. I've heard so many complaints from people about the dumbest, littlest things that it just ruins their day. I've talked to some people who 2020 has been downright horrible. I would agree with them. And they would say, I just wish this year would get over. I wish I would just blink my eyes in 2020 would be gone. And I have to say to them, amen, because of what they've went through. It's been, it's been absolutely 
horrible. I couldn't agree more. But even in the midst of that, it's not as bad as what Jesus was about to face. Yet he would be able to proclaim, I still praise you for this day. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 25, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. When I read this verse and I think of Jesus singing it, I think of him looking at his disciples who are singing this as well. And I have to think if he would have thought, do they get it? Today is the day. Today is the day this takes place for them. Today is the day that they could understand true, they're going to witness it, true prosperity for their soul as he goes to that cross to die for them. This was all happening. The people crying out to the Lord during their Passover meal, we pray for salvation. And Jesus knowing today is the day. You're, you're living out history right now. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This was already fulfilled in Jesus' triumphant entry. This is what the people would proclaim as he would make his way into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then we get to verse 27. I want to call it tragic, but for us it's not tragic. It's beautiful. For us it's the ultimate sacrifice. For us, it's salvation. It's what allows us to cry out, your mercy endures forever. But Jesus himself then singing, verse 27, God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords and tie him to the altar. In Matthew chapter 27, verse two, just a short time after Jesus would sing this psalm, would then say, this would happen to him. It says, and they bound him and they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate, the governor. Jesus himself would be bound up, his hands completely bound, taken away like a criminal to face the tribunal, to face his judgment and then to be bound to a cross. The sacrifice being bound to the altar. Jesus singing this, let it happen now, bind the sacrifice to the altar, almost saying, it's going to happen. I've, I've submitted myself to you. This is, this is taking place in my humility and my obedience to the Father. This is going to happen. Bind me to the altar. I will be the sacrifice. It's amazing that Jesus would accept this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 through 14, it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, this was the very last time that ever needed to be sung. This was the very last time that it ever needed to be declared, let's go bind the sacrifice to the altar. Because when Jesus was bound to that cross and was sacrificed for our sins, it was declared from that moment on, this never has to happen again. This is absolutely sufficient. No more do we have to walk into the temple and sacrifice these animals and spread their blood all over the place and 
hope that our high priest is worthy. No, because Christ is our worthy high priest. Christ is our worthy king to go forward, as we've already seen in Psalm 2. And Christ alone is the perfect sacrifice that needs to be made for us. And this is what then causes us to obey verses 28 to 29. To praise him because his mercy endures forever. I always want to encourage you when we partake of Lord's Supper or even think about it to read Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a very important book in the New Testament because it speaks of all of this. It speaks of how Jesus is our high priest. It speaks of how he is the sacrifice once and for all. It speaks of how he, in fact, is actually the mercy seat that would cover the Ten Commandments, that would sit on the Ark of the Covenant that God would come and sit on. He, he's all of it. And so when we look at this psalm for us today, it's important for us to reflect on the fact that we walk down the path of life with our king. When we are saved by God's grace, we have the privilege of walking on the king's path with the king to the gate of righteousness. We, we walk alongside of him. We walk with him. But listen, when we get to the gate, and this is the most important part, we walk in with him. We're not left behind. We don't get looked at like little kids and say, listen, the, only the big kids go in here. That doesn't happen to us as Christians. That doesn't happen to us as children of the king. No, because he is worthy we are worthy. He has made us worthy to enter into the temple, to be with the Father. God has accepted him as the sacrifice. And so we are accepted through Christ and through Christ alone. I know this is silly. I know this looks foolish. I know this isn't how we normally do it. I understand that. There's a reason that we find this to be important. There's a reason that we want to do everything we can to make sure we get to observe Lord's Supper together. It's not because we enjoy the taste, as you'll find out shortly. <clears throat> we do it for what it means. We do it for what it represents. We do it because God has called us to do it. This is a, this is a gift that God has given us right here. Because we visually get to see what Christ meant when he said, take my body, which is broken for you, and eat of it. Remember, remember what I read earlier? Jesus said, if you eat of me, if you eat of me, then you are of the fathers. That, that's, a, that's the visual thing that we are doing there. And then we take of that juice and we we drink of that juice, which represents the blood of the new covenant. What is the new covenant? It's what I've been talking about this whole time. It's what was about to happen in that very moment. As Jesus is singing this psalm, the new covenant is about to take place. Listen, people, you don't have to kill your lamb anymore. You don't have to eat of its flesh anymore because the true lamb is going to make a new covenant. And so through me, you will be saved. Not through some little spotless lamb. No, through the spotless lamb that Isaiah talked about long ago. 
The new covenant is being made. So when we take of this bread and we drink of this cup, listen, we participate in what the body of Christ has been participating in for thousands of years. We join in with our brothers and sisters who died in the year 300, who died in the year 1200, but we walk the same path that they walk with our king together. And that's what makes this special. I know Pastor Scott felt a little awkward saying, we're praying that if there's any quarrels, they be settled. We're praying that we have unity as a church. And sure, maybe that puts alarms off in your head like, what's going on in the church? Is something bad going on in the church? Yeah, where there's sinners in it. And we don't always get along. But the beauty of Lord's Supper together is this. We should realize none of us is any better than anybody else sitting in this room. Nothing you have done has made you holy to observe this and say, ah, this is because of me. This is all because of him. And if you do have quarrels with somebody else in our church, you do need to settle it. You do need to settle it. It's a serious matter. It is an affront to the Lord who died for the both of you. So if one of you sit over here and one of you sit over here and you won't get any closer because you hate each other, that is horrible. That's a horrible thing. You should confess that sin. And you should reconcile with your brother and sister. Why? Because our king was worthy to be bound to the altar for them. So you should at least be willing to say you're sorry. You should at least be willing to love them regardless of whatever their problem is. The Lord's Supper carries with it great significance. And I'm glad we're able to do this this morning. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.